Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 65C, Little King Tutmos, being the early life of King Tutmos III, and how his aunt, Queen Hatshepsut, accommodated the needs of her young co-ruler up to regnal year 17. Today's episode is brought to you by Stephen Clark, Thomas Rowell, and Richard McNellis, in gratitude for their donations to the podcast. Your support keeps the show running, folks. Thank you very much for your help. Now then, let's begin. The year is approximately 1477 BCE. Regnal year 17 of the Queen King Hatshepsut. Well, not really. It's actually Regnal year 17 of Hatshepsut's nephew, the King of Upper and Lower Egypt, Menkeper Kare Tatmos III. Son of Tatmos II, grandson of Tatmos I, the young king is all of 18 or 19 years old, maybe slightly older. Since his infancy, he has been the crown king of Egypt, ruler of the two lands, first son and servant of the gods, and the leader of a burgeoning empire. But for those seventeen years, Tutmos III has been a mystery, a cipher in his own kingdom, with his stepmother-slash-aunt ruling the two lands in his name, and doing a pretty solid job of it, all things considered, the young monarch Tutmos really hasn't had much of anything official to do. That is not to say that he's been idle. Far from it, in fact. As a monarch of Egypt, and a male growing up amongst the elite, Tutmos III has been an extremely busy young man. Pretty much every day, in fact, he's been buried in the paperwork, religious rituals, and military training expected of a man destined to rule an entire country, and an entire people. What was Tutmos's life like in the years before his aunt died? What did he do every day? What did he learn? And, when the time came, how did he handle the authority of his stepmother and find his feet in an Egypt which he really only ruled in name? Let's find out. I originally wanted to call this episode an awkward transition, but maybe I'd be exaggerating. For us, it's sure awkward to try and piece together the decisions, the arguments, the compromises that might have gone into all of this politicking. But for the ancients, maybe it wasn't so complicated after all. Maybe the boundaries of Hatshepsut's power and Tutmos' authority were so well understood by everyone that things simply ticked along smoothly. We like to assume that there was conflict based on some later things, but maybe we've got it all wrong. 
Maybe the transition wasn't awkward at all. Maybe it was just natural. But hey, a natural transition just doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? In the end, both titles had to go. So here we are, with Little King Tutmos. As of regnal year 17, Hatshepsut had been secure in her power for about, oh, 17 years. So would she be surprised or bothered when Tutmos came out of the woodwork and started to act on his own initiative? I don't know, but I don't really think so. It certainly did not go like this. And Tutmosis, what are you doing here? I'm going to put you where you belong. Although TV documentaries like to play up the idea of a conflict between Hatshepsut and Tutmos, with the two depicted at loggerheads or in constant disagreement, the truth is murkier. Based on what actually survives, there's really not much evidence for any conflict at all. Hatshepsut gave Tutmos full recognition a lot of the time, and when she ignored him, there was usually a good reason in that particular situation. Like, he doesn't show up nearly as much as her on the walls of Jesser Jesseru, but, you know, that was her mortuary temple. What else would we expect? To all intents and purposes, Hatshepsut treated Tutmos as an equal, in public. In private? Well, we're probably missing just too much information to make even an educated guess. At best, we can say this. There isn't any direct evidence that Tutmos was bitter or hated Hatshepsut. Although he did make some harsh decisions about her, that was about 20 years later after she died. And, as I think we'll see down the road, there were some good reasons for why he did so. Reasons that might not have had anything to do with her, personally. As far as we can tell right now, Tutmos went along with the co-regency and monarchy pretty quietly. I mean, it all started when he was still literally in diapers. By the time he was old enough to understand what it all meant, well... It was kind of just the way things were. Hatshepsut did not mistreat Tutmos III, and his education was pretty conventional by royal standards. Even though he was a king, he was still a child, and he would have to wait his turn to exercise full authority. But as he grew older, let's say 12 years or so, Tutmos must have wondered what his actual role in this whole government thing really was. Nominally, he was in charge. But what did that mean when his stepmother-slash-aunt was running affairs day-to-day? In short, what did Tutmos have to do to get a little authority around here? Well, I'm glad you asked, because answering that question brings us face-to-face with two institutions that I really have not covered as much as I would like. I'm talking, of course, about the armed forces of the country and the wonderful institution which today we know as the Harim. As luck would have it, These two institutions are central to the story of Tutmos III and the future of Egyptian history. So, we're going to spend the entirety of this episode bunking up with these two groups. First up, the Harim. The word harem is a tricky one. It comes from the old Ottoman Empire, which ruled Turkey and the Near East for many centuries, up until the end of World War I. Harem, in this context, refers to the royal apartments where the queens, concubines, and mistresses of the Ottoman emperors lived, 
and spent their daily lives. Today, you can see the beautiful apartments and the barracks which guarded them in the Topkapi Palace of Istanbul. I went there recently, and it is... well, opulence does not even begin to do it justice. The Ottoman harem was so rich and so luxurious that it actually acquired a bit of a bad reputation, at least amongst judgmental Western writers. You see, some of the less accomplished Ottoman emperors were said to spend more time in their harem than they would in the offices of government. Basically, they became so fond of their wives, mistresses, slaves, and concubines that they just couldn't bring themselves to leave and take care of that dull, dull business which we call something like, hmm, doing your job and running the empire? Evidently, Western writers felt the same way, and they were harshly critical of these particular rulers. So, thanks to a few bad apples, the concept of the harem has been tainted. It's gone from its genuine purpose, which is simply the apartments of the royal woman, to something with a sensual, decadent, sexual element. Well, the Egyptian harem was a bit more classical, a bit more respectable, and, honestly, a hell of a lot more mysterious. In its very basic sense, the Egyptian harem was like the Ottoman one, which is why Egyptologists started calling it that. The harem was the apartments of the royal woman, queens, wives, queen mothers. In many respects, it may have also been a place of retirement for older women. Essentially, it's a place where the royal woman lived. It had its own complex, its own institutions, and we'll get to those in a second. It was a place of socialising, especially of music. Artistic scenes from tombs that come after the period of Tutmos III show the harem filled with women playing musical instruments. So we could definitely recognise a social element in all of that as well. It's not hard to imagine the harem as a place where the king comes to socialise with his most trusted officials. Around them, the wives and concubines of the palace might play their musical instruments or sing songs. This would demonstrate the learning and culture of the king's wives, and so enhance his prestige by association. Basically, the harem filled a lot of functions. Yes, there was the obvious sexual element. The king could go there to be pleasant with his wives, his concubines, his slaves, his mistresses, all that jazz. But there was also a very big element of a chill zone to it, a place to relax and to enjoy the pleasures that the royal court had to offer. The harem was also a bit dangerous. This was mainly because it was full of women who had incredible social power. Many of them had children who were the direct descendants of the king. And, as you can imagine, there was a lot of competition over which ones of these children were going to become the next ruler. Obviously, some children were just legitimately more powerful than others. The son of a king and a main wife was obviously more important than the son of a king and a concubine. But this didn't stop conspiracies and backstabbing. In fact, the harem was responsible for at least one, maybe two, three, or even four royal assassinations. Over the centuries, powerful wives would get into conflict with one another over whose son or daughter would become the next prince or princess. Power struggles were common, and we know for certain that at least one king died as a result of these struggles. Basically, the harem was dangerous territory. But what actually was it? Well, the New Kingdom term for the harem was the Per Gener, or House of Restraint. It doesn't sound great, I admit, but bear with me. 
The Père Chenaire was, as far as archaeology and literature can tell us, a key component of the royal palace. And since it was a key component of the royal palace, it was also an essential cog in the royal economy. The Père Chenaire was not just a set of apartments or houses for the royal woman. It definitely was that, and the houses were lovely. But it was also a major economic institution. It had agricultural estates dedicated to its use, and even government officials assigned to work in it. There were servants, male and female, working in its halls and offices, and there was an official royal overseer of the harem to make sure that it all functioned properly. So it was a pretty sophisticated mechanism, all things considered. Maybe not as sophisticated as the Temple of Karnak or the royal palaces, but still incredibly valuable to the economy. If you were looking for a government posting, the harem was probably a good avenue to take. Just don't touch the women. Thutmose III is the earliest king to leave behind a harem that we can actually see in the archaeological record. Coincidence? Maybe. But I'd be willing to put some money on the argument that the harem became more important under Thutmose III than it had been for several generations. He certainly considered the harem a valuable institution. He made it rich, and he made it important. In the process, he accidentally kick-started a process that would see royal women become phenomenally influential in the affairs of government, and see the harem become a rather sophisticated centre of politics, both for good and for evil. One of the notable aspects of Thutmose III's harem is its location. Thutmose's harem was located in the Fayum, which made it one of the most valuable royal institutions in the whole country. You see, the Fayum was farming country. Royal estates here were incredibly rich, thanks to the fertility of the soil and the abundance of fresh water at Lake Moeris. The farms and of orchards here produced a hell of a lot of goods for the palace, and the tax revenue this place contributed must have been massive. The harem here would have been one of the centres of that economy. On top of that, the Fayum country had a powerful religious aura, thanks to the great temple of Sobek the Crocodile, and the vast royal cemetery left behind from the Middle Kingdom. That cemetery, including the burial monuments of kings like Sinusaret I or Amenemhat III, would have been the background for a lot of Thutmose III's religious education. How do we know that, though? Well, let's just say for now that Thutmose III shows an unusually high degree of interest in those 12th dynasty kings. And among the rulers of the 18th dynasty, his degree of personal devotion to the royal ancestors is way, way up there. So, granted, we don't know where Tutmos spent most of his time in his youth, but if you're looking for particular locations, the harem in the Fayum is not a bad guess. Secluded and protected, but also incredibly well connected to the economic and social life of the government. The harem was an excellent place for a prince, sorry, king, to learn the basics of what he needed to do when he grew up. Day to day, though, his education was probably a bit of a mixed bag in terms of enjoyment. Tutmos would be up before dawn. He would practice worship and offerings to the gods. Very dull. As the sun rose, he would be out into the training fields for physical education. Not my thing, but some people enjoy it. Then, as the day became hot, he was back inside into the shade to learn scribal skills like reading and writing. That's my kind of scene. Or mathematics. Less so. Then, as the afternoon wore on and the evening began, it was back to the shrines for worship and offerings. Not my idea of a good night out, but it'll do. 
Then it was bad, and the whole rotten business began again the next day. We don't know much about Tutmose's childhood in terms of what he enjoyed, but if we work backwards from his later career, we can guess what he was good at. Tutmose III, first and foremost, was an excellent, excellent soldier. Which brings me, nicely, to the second of the great institutions which we're interested in today. I'm talking, of course, about the army. Tutmose III came of age at an interesting time in Egypt's military history. One era, the age that had produced the Middle Kingdom and the successful war of independence against the Hyksos, was now beginning to fade. That had been an era when kings called up their soldiers only occasionally, when they needed them, and afterwards sent them back to their homes, to their camps. Soldiers of that time were called the Anku Nu Niut, or soldiers of the town. They were locally raised, locally housed, and locally trained. And when they were not fighting, they were not soldiers at all. They were probably farmers or labourers. In short, you might call them part-time warriors. I can probably sum it up with something like this movie quote. You, there. What is your profession? I'm a potter. And you, Arcadian, what is your profession? Sculptor, sir. And you? Blacksmith. Spartans! What is your profession? You see, old friend, I brought more soldiers than you did. The Egyptian soldiers were less like Leonidas's Spartans and more like the Arcadians, potters, weavers, and farmers. Only occasionally were they soldiers. But when Tutmose III was born, Egypt's armed forces had experienced a great deal of change. They had travelled further than many before them, to the banks of the Euphrates River under Tutmose I, and to the trade lands of Punt under Hatshepsut. There were now men who had seen warfare that lasted months rather than weeks, who had experienced combat outside of Egypt itself, and who had served in campaign after campaign after campaign. Although 90% of the soldiers were still potters and farmers most of the year, there were a few, just a few, like Amos Ibana or Amos Pennekbet, men who had become veterans. The result was a little shift in how the soldiers began to describe themselves. A small shift, but it tells you and me an awful lot. The shift went like this. Instead of calling themselves soldiers of the town, the Egyptian soldier now began to call themselves Anku Nu Mesha. This little word, Mesha, makes all the difference. Why? Because Anku Nu Mesha translates to soldier of the army. Egypt was now beginning to develop an army closer to what we might consider the classic armed forces. A group of men who, for most of the year, dedicated themselves to training, to practicing, and to learning the arts of warfare and militaristic conflict. It was a tiny group, to be sure, but they were still there, a core of men practiced and trained in the profession. Tutmose III almost certainly spent a lot of his youth with these men. Some of them would have been members of the noble families, sent to train in the palace as a reward for their parents' service. Others would have been the children of veteran soldiers like Amosi Bana, children who were now expected to carry on their father's career. Finally, 
Some of Tutmose's colleagues might have been from middle-class families. Their parents, perhaps, were hoping that they would get ahead by training alongside, and hopefully becoming friends with, the child king himself. In short, it was a bunch of kids doing what their parents expected of them, so that they could one day be of great service to the king, and to enrich their own households with their achievements. This, you might recognise, is the basic idea of a cadet academy, and Tutmose III was at the heart of it all. We don't know how many of these young cadets there were, but for the sake of acute reference, I'm going to refer to them simply as Tutmose's 300. Tutmosis? What are you doing here? Hmm. I like this sound effect. I should use it more often. Tutmose and his brave 300 were the core of the Egyptian army. They were trained regularly in three skills. Fighting with melee weapons, spears and swords. Fighting with ranged weapons, bows and arrows. And finally, fighting in a chariot. The chariot was the real key to this army, the one that Tutmose III inherited from his grandfather. It was the elite weapon of the day, and our young prince probably started learning to ride a chariot as soon as he was able. Along with his fellow cadets, he would practice racing at high speed, turning while still driving, and most importantly, learning how to fight and attack from the back of a moving vehicle. It can't have been easy, but I honestly cannot think of anything the average 12-year-old boy would love more than being put into a moving vehicle and told to shoot things at imaginary enemies. It's like Soldier Fantasy Camp 101. Even I kind of want to join. So day to day, Tutmose III probably spent a lot of his time at military training. Racing around in his chariot, he'd shoot arrows at targets. On foot, he would learn how to fight with spear and sword, in single combat and as a group. And for more desperate situations, he would learn how to wrestle a man to the ground and pin him. Basically, he was slowly being turned into a lean, mean, killing machine. To what end, though? Well, there was a purpose to all this, and it wasn't just so that Tutmos could get any pubescent aggression out of his system. It was all in service to a greater ideal, an ideal that would eventually benefit Tutmos himself. But first, it had to benefit his stepmother. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Around the 14th regnal year, Tutmose was about 16 years old. He was physically matured and had been training for most of his life. So it was only right that at this point he start to fill his obligations towards the state. Specifically, it was time for him to put theory into practice and start doing some actual fighting. Tutmose III became the commander of the Egyptian army at the order of Queen Hatshepsut. This was an important responsibility, and he was expected to accomplish great things with it. The pressure must have been high, because if he'd failed, he'd not only tarnish his own kingship, but that of his aunt as well. Effectively, he had two crowns riding on his success. There were just two problems, though. 
1. Tutmose could not possibly put himself in any real danger, not while he was too young to have fathered a proper heir. And secondly, Egypt was, you know, kind of peaceful at the moment. There weren't any threats or anything, so what was a boy to do? Where could Tutmose find his war? Well, that wasn't going to stop Tutmose, or Hatshepsut for that matter. Historians of an older breed liked to think that the reign of Hatshepsut was a pacifist one, that she didn't lead any campaigns. They never really explained why, but the hint was because she was a woman. Well, that idea is long dead among academic Egyptologists. Thanks to more enlightened research, we now know that there were at least four campaigns in the reign of Hatshepsut. What's more, we know that she led at least one of these herself, appearing on the battlefields of Nubia as a symbol of royal power. Later, of course, Hatshepsut's attention turned to things like Punt and her great monuments. But when the time came for war, she did not neglect the opportunity. Nor did she fail to see that this was an excellent chance for young Tutmose to gain some experience. So, when Tutmose III was approximately 16, Hatshepsut decided that the time had come. She sent him out on campaign. Between regnal years 14 and 20, approximately, Tutmose III fought at least one, maybe three, different Nubian wars. These weren't big affairs, nothing like what Amos or Tutmose I had done, but they were still respectable, and they were very, very, very good training. You see, Nubia's royal power had been crushed generations back, so the countryside was a lot quieter, or subjugated, in these days. For a young king in need of experience, this was actually really good. Tutmose didn't have to overextend himself like he might if he went north. His main purpose here was crushing antagonistic tribes, proving his military prowess, and protecting the major fortresses. All up, that was much easier to do in Nubia than the sieges or diplomatic affairs which would have entangled him up in Canaan or Syria. So, Tutmose III learned the art of war by stomping up and down Nubia, punishing the locals, and earning a little name for himself. Not bad for a teenager, right? But all parties have to end, and eventually Tutmose and his army had to come home. It was back to the temples, back to the scribal offices, back to the daily grind. But the young king now had a taste for adventure, and if we can guess anything from his later career, he seems to have very much enjoyed that taste. When Tutmose III returned home from his campaigns, I think it would be fair to say that he was probably a changed man. This is not to say that he was now some kind of demigod willing to challenge Hatshepsut for supremacy, but more that he had a greater awareness of his place in the world. He understood what was expected of him much better than he had necessarily learned being cooped up in the harem or at home. Essentially, Tutmose III had now become the king that he had been trained for his whole life. Fortunately, he did this just a few years before Hatshepsut decided to cark it. Next episode, it's time to say farewell to Hatshepsut, as we complete the transition from one king to the next, and the great lady of Egypt fills her final years on the throne. Join us soon for episode 66. We'll see you soon. Ah, that's the stuff.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.